Hello and welcome to the summer season of Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. You may be astonished to discover there is a member of the Kennedy dynasty that you've never heard of, JFK's beloved sister Kathleen, known by friends and family as Kick because of her habit of kicking her shoes off no matter where she was. British author Paula Byrne, who's written biographies of Jane Austen and Evelyn Waugh and a novel about Marlene Dietrich, brings her own high energy and verve to this portrait of an immensely privileged young woman who came from one illustrious family and married into another before tragedy struck. Glamour and drama characterise every page of this story, capturing a woman of great charm and charisma who had the gift of feeling at ease anywhere and never took anyone or anything too seriously. I spoke to Paula Byrne at Adelaide Writers' Week on her first visit to Australia, and there was a fly-past at some point, so you will hear some overhead plane noise. Now, Paula, I looked the other day on Goodreads, which is a book uh, reader website, and I found that there are 133 biographies of the Kennedys available. So when you were thinking about Kik, how did you find out whether anybody else was onto her at the same time as you? Because there isn't a sort of register for biography where you can go and check who's doing what, is there? Four times I thought I was writing a biography of somebody no one knew the first thing about. And four times, three other people published it at the same time. Wow. And it's a really extraordinary thing in biography that you you know what the, the, the holy grail is to find this lost voice, the person that no one's... They think they know this particular story. And then you find a new person and the story's shifted and told in a different way. And I think, you know, God up there or somebody doesn't like me because every time I think I've found this obscure, brilliant story, um, another book comes out. Which, But thankfully, I've just about managed to get in there before anybody else so got the review coverage. Um, but the Kennedy story, um, the Kit Kennedy story, was not a story that was known about. I, I'm an Irish Kennedy, my mum's an Irish Kennedy, um, so an ancestor way, way back. Um, I never even heard of Kathleen Kennedy. Of course I'd heard of all the others. And it was whilst I was researching uh, my Evelyn War book that I was looking through his diaries and he kept saying, kick this, kick that, kick the other. And I thought, well, who the hell's kick? Um, and then I looked it up and found she was this extraordinary person with an amazing story but nobody had told it, and then I discovered why nobody had told the story. Mm, and that, well, okay, that was not part of the story. Which, which we will get to. So which were the others? Because when you mentioned the fact that you'd, you'd wanted to write these books and other people had sort of done it too, that obviously Evelyn Waugh is a fairly high-profile person. Jane Austen has had many books written about her. So when else did you have this problem where someone kind of pipped you to the post? Well, um, you're absolutely right that with Jane Austen, you know a gazillion of people are going to do it and you've just got to find a new angle. And that's fine. You, you know, you expect that with somebody like Jane Austen. But I wrote my, my second book was a book about a contemporary of Jane Austen, a woman called Perdita Robinson, who was extraordinary. She was a royal mistress. Um, she was the first um, poetry editor of the Morning Post. She was a published poet. She gave these two upstarts their first break, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Wordsworth. Um, <laughs> and without her, you know, they wouldn't be known. 
and um, was paralysed. She was very beautiful. She was paralysed at the age of 25, remade herself as this extraordinary writer, and nobody had heard about her. And then as, just as I was about to go to press... My publisher phone said, two people are writing this story. Um, so can you really hurry up? <laughs> so I had to really hurry up. Um, so it happened with Perdita, and I thought, well, you know, it happens. It won't happen again. Um, and then I decided that I'd write a book about Evelyn War and a particular family. So I don't know whether... Did, did Brideshead yes. Revisited come yes. out here? Yes. Um, so the family who inspired that family were called the Ligon family. Um, who were the March mains in Brideshead. And the real story is far more fascinating than Brideshead, um, <laughs> I can tell you. Um, in fact, Lord Beecham, who was based on Lord March, he was a great Australian. He loved Sydney. He'd spent a lot of... He was ousted for being homosexual in Britain. He was the last man. So, so from Oscar Wilde, he was an upstanding member of the community, had all these children, and then he went to live in Sydney because that was the only place that would have him. Um, and I thought... <laughs> Oh, my gosh, this story's fantastic. Nobody knows this story. And then my published phone's up and says, you know your story about the Liggins and Magic? Yeah, there's another book coming out. Can you hurry up? (laughs) Okay, we've been here before. Um, And uh, we kick. And it happened again with kick. Really? So an, an American was writing a story. And, you know, I think it just, it can happen with biography. And I think, I don't sweat it anymore. I just think if it's going to happen, just write the best book you can write. And also, other books aren't going to be my books. You know, I've got a particular take. I've got a particular take on Jane Austen that other people don't have. And I just think there's room. There's, it's a big enough world. We can all fit into it. So I'm mm. quite relaxed about it. That's a very generous and very secure position to come <laughs> at biography from. I would be tearing my hair out. Um, I was very struck when I interviewed Claire Tomlin a few years ago about her incredible body of biography that she attached a lot of importance to the physicality of her research. And she seemed to need to walk from A to B to sort of map out where her characters had lived and where they had travelled and how they had travelled. Is the physicality of your subject important to you, um, for example, with Kick or, or with any other? Absolutely. There's a, there's a fantastic book um, by a biographer called Richard Holmes mm. called Footsteps. And it was a real game changer in biography because he was the first biographer to actually get on his donkey so he was writing about Robbie Louis Stevenson's, and, uh, Stevenson. He said, the only way I'm going to know what this man was really like is to do what he did and get on a donkey in the Spanish hills and take that same ride. And it was a real game changer because it made other biographers realise actually footstepping, walking in the shoes of the person that you're writing about reveals so many things that you, 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 you would never know. So I'm absolutely obsessive about following... I mean, when I did the... the the Evelyn War book, I had to find the palazzo on the Grand Canal in Venice that Lord Beecham went to. Do you remember the scene in Brideshead when they go to, uh, Sebastian and Charles go to, and I found, I knocked on the door and said, can you let me in? I was absolutely determined. And it's amazing how thing, you, you see things when you footstep that you don't ever see. And one story against myself, I'm still to this day annoyed about this because I footstepped around Oxford. I now live in Oxford and know it intimately, but I didn't then. And, um, I thought I'd really footstep properly, and it wasn't until I lived in Oxford that one little detail arose that had escaped me, and it annoys me to 
In fact, it annoys me every single day of my life <laughs> because I walk my son to school. And in, in, in Brideshead, the eldest son went to Christchurch. And in real life, the eldest beat, uh, Ligon's son went to Christchurch, the biggest, richest Oxford college. And Hugh Ligon, who is a Sebastian Flight figure, the beautiful young man who dies of alcoholism, was Hugh Ligon. And he went to Pembroke. And I argue in the book he had second son syndrome. You know, he's the spare, not the heir. And so that's why he drank himself to death, partly. And, but what I hadn't realised... And he always felt second fiddle. He always felt number two. And then when I, my son goes to school next door to Pembroke, and it's physically in the shadow of Christ... I mean, if you were going to feel like a second son and a second-class citizen, you would really feel it going to Pembroke. And it was just a silly little thing, and it wouldn't bother anybody else. But it really bothers me. <laughs> it would have been a sentence in the book... But it still bothers me that I, my footstepping wasn't thorough enough. Um, but to answer your question, I, I really do think it's important to... I mean, I'm, I'm, this morning I went for a run around the river and I was smelling everything and taking in the atmosphere um, because there's a novel I want to write and some of it will be set in L.A. And it reminded me of L.A. And I think you've really got to walk the walk a bit as a mm. biographer. You can't just sit in your dusty little, you know, ivory tower... I think you've just got to get out there because you'll miss things that mm. are really vital to the, the person's perspective. So for me, it's always been a, a hugely important part, foot, the footstepping, yeah. I love the use of that word, footstepping, as an, as an active verb. I think I'm <laughs> going to try that. Um, so what's it like, though, when you approach the Kennedy archives? I mean, there are very substantial Kennedy archives and Kennedy libraries, and they've obviously seen their fair share of biographers coming their way, given that there are 133 books out there already. So when you're going to the Kennedy archives, how do you know what to look for? And is there, was there anything that revealed itself to you there that was particularly surprising? And were they very cooperative? They were very cooperative. And... Um I would not have undertaken the book, even though it was a fantastic story. I would not have undertaken it if I didn't have access to the archive. And if I'd written the book six years ago, I would not have had access to the archive because it only went into the uh, JFK library four years ago. Um, and without that, I couldn't have done it. I, w I couldn't have given voice to this incredible woman if I hadn't had access to her diaries, to her journals, to uh, her letters. So it was very fortuitous that it just came at the right time that everything was given to the JFK Library and it, it was available to the public. So, And I was very lucky because I had a brilliant research student. They're all photocopies. They won't let you touch the real manuscripts anymore. So I, w I was flying out to Boston looking at photocopies. So I just got a student to photocopy everything <laughs> at great expense so I could sit in Oxford and spread everything out all over the table, 2,000 pages of, of manuscripts, and work at my own pace. And I got so anxious about, no, I, must, I, I might have missed something. So I flew back out to Boston to the library and just, no, I must, must check. And found a joint diary written by Kick and Billy, who was the man she married against the family's wishes, the Duke of Devonshire's son, Anglican, not Catholic. Uh, of the five weeks they had together, the, uh, five only weeks on honeymoon, and it had been misfiled in the archive. Wow. And I just found it, and I just... It's one of those sort of you wake up in the middle of the night thinking, what if I hadn't found that? Would it have mattered? Probably not, but it matters to me. And it mm. would just not be such a great book. Uh, sorry, not great, but sounds very vain. But um, <laughs> book, <laughs> good book. Um, or it wouldn't be such a true book. Um, so you, you can always miss things. So one mm. can't get too obsessed about it. But the problem with the Kennedys is 
there's too much, you know. Yes. And I wrote another biography of a book called... Uh, did you... Did Belle, the film Belle, come out here about yes. the black aristocratic girl? Yes. I wrote the book for that film. And... Um, the film was coming out and they called me up and said, would I write a book to accompany it? Because it was a real story. And I knew the story because of Jane Austen. Um, so I said two sensible things. One, how much are you going to pay me? And two, how long have I got? <laughs> and they said, well, you've got eight weeks. And I said, oh, how much are you going to pay me? And then they said, X amount. I said, fine. Um, <laughs> and then I said, but I'll tell you something. I said, there are nine known facts about Dido Elizabeth Bell. So what do you want me to write a biography when there are nine known facts? And they said, yeah, you can do it. You can fill it out. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So, and actually, what a challenge that was, because on the one hand, and I am answering your question, Caroline, I promise. I know you are. (laughs) Um, on, On the one hand, you can have a plethora of archival material, and you almost can't see the wood for the trees, and you don't really know where to start. And it's just a sea of words and you can get very caught up and then sometimes lose the narrative and the story. And that is the case with the Kennedys. They were inveterate collectors. Rose Kennedy, there are 80 million pieces in her archive. 80 million. Just Rose. So she collected everything. Newspaper cuttings. She wrote hundreds of thousands of letters, kept journals. That's just Rose. And there are nine children. (laughs) So that was a nightmare, frankly. Um, But then... And then, but then you get sort of the nine known facts. What do I do with that? I mean, that is the challenge of being a biographer. And it's your job, frankly, to get on with it. And I think the internet has made everything a lot easier for Mm. us writers. And we really should be thankful and not moan about it. Too many people whinge about it. But in fact, you know, honestly, what you can get online in terms of archival material is there's no excuse for writers to be lazy. You've just got to get on with it, I think, because there's so much out there. So so it's a a good thing and a bad thing, really, Mm. when you have too much. I don't know really what, you know, the proper answer is to that, really. Well, given that we've started, you've, you've mentioned Rose, let's talk a little bit about Kick in terms of her parents because they are towering, towering figures in this biography, huge personalities. You talked about Rose's collecting things and she had this habit of keeping scrapbooks of the news and also pinning articles, didn't she? She'd, she'd sort of cut them out so that, that they could be discussed with the children at dinner. Um, tell us a little bit about Rose and uh, Kick's father as these huge personalities in her life and what, what influence they had on the person she becomes. I think the parents have been given a very bad press. I'm just going to say that straight out there. You know, Joe Kennedy does not get great press anywhere <laughs> these days and Rose doesn't much either. But I like when I'm writing about a book, I, I like just to see, sometimes flip it up a bit and see what the other side is. And I think... In fact, the Kennedys, a lot of them have written to me. And one of them, you know, crying, saying, you're the first person to be nice to my parents for, wow. <laughs> for years. And it wasn't that I was being nice to her parents. I think I was just looking at them as parents, which, frankly, I think is the hardest job in the world, don't you think? Um, <laughs> and how many of us get that right? You know, I'm not sure I do. Um, I do my best. And I think my view was, yes, there were issues with Rose and Joe. I suppose the fierce competitive streak in the Kennedys was fostered by those parents. But again, such a bad thing. I don't know. 
maybe not. Um, but they were hugely influential. And it's funny because lots of people have said, oh, you're too nice about Rose, too nice about Joe." And I said, listen, I've looked at thousands of photographs in that archive, and I mean thousands And practically every single photograph shows those children looking at their parents with eyes of utter adoration. Mm. So they did something right. (laughs) So, uh, and and I I guess I wanted to sort of flesh that out a bit. And um, I say they were incredible. It was so attentive. I mean, Joe, he had nine children. But every single day of his life, when he was with the children, he would give every single one time. He would sit them on the bed and he would chat, or he'd have a joke with them, or he'd go for a swim. He was a very modern father in many, many ways. And those children, whether you like him or not, adored him. Completely worshipped the ground he walked on. In Kick's letters, every time she writes, it's darling daddy, dear daddy, sweet daddy. It's always mother, yes, Rose. Yes. Dear mother. Never mommy, never mom, never mama, mother. You know, you can sort of, these little things you can really pick up on. Um, Rose was the matriarch. She had a philandering husband. She denied it all. I love this story because he, he, one of his mistresses was Gloria Swanson, who was a sort of smaller, prettier version of Rose. So he was doing that classic thing that men sometimes do, is, you know, the younger model that looks exactly like the wife, but shave off 10 years and a few pounds. So Gloria was sort of Rose, you know, Hollywood star. And as Rose left in one Rolls Royce, Gloria Swanson would come in on the other Rolls Royce. And at one point, um, Gloria, she wrote a biography, her autobiography, and she said, Rose Kennedy, she said, was she a saint or was she just a better actor than I was? <laughs> and it's just brilliant. Um, you know, Rose's was, if, you, I can't, if I can't see it, it's not happening. But in fact, that keeps a family together. Mm. For good or for bad, she kept the family together. So I did have sympathy for, for Rose and Joe. And also, they paid a big price. Mm. They lost so many of their children um, for that overweening ambition, wanting their children to be so successful. My goodness, they paid a price for that. So I did come from a position of, you know, I, I wasn't all over them. But I, at the same time, I, was, I think I was quite balanced. And as I say, the, a lot of the Kennedy children have been very touched by that and said thank you for... Mm. Because it's been for too long. It's been, oh, Rose was this pious Catholic. She hated every... You know, she got the children to say the prayers on their knees every day. She did. <laughs> JFK still in the White House prayed on his knees every night. People would go in and be really surprised he was still on his knees. Um, but you could argue that gave them values. I don't know, but they were huge figures in their lives. So when Kick rebelled against that power couple, it was really, really tough. Mm, absolutely, yes, we'll come to that. So given where she is in the pecking order of the family, you might just want to tell us where she comes in the sort of order of this great um, dynastic brood. Tell us about which brother she was closest to and, and why and what that bond was, because they seem to have been a family where physicality and the ability to play sport and to play games together was very, very important. Definitely. So we have Joe Jr., who was the gorgeous-looking, beautiful boy that should have been president, that was so competitive when his Jack became a war hero. He volunteered for a suicide mission and was blown to bits over the English Channel in a plane loaded with explosives, and he was going to parachute out like that was ever going to work. You know, and uh, so it blew, in 20 minutes he was blown over the Channel. And he did it because he couldn't bear being number two. And that thing about overweening ambition and competitiveness... 
uh, Joe, and then Jack, who was very ill, very sickly, had, we now know, Addison's, they didn't know then, so in and out of hospital, nearly died of scarlet fever. Then Rosemary, who was brain damaged, so Rosemary's about to come out, and the, the midwife didn't get paid unless the doctor was in the room. It was Spanish flu, the doctor took ten, an hour too late, so the nurse pushed the head back in and, and starved the brain of oxygen. So she had the brain of a 10-year-old all her life until her father decided she should have a lobotomy. And then she had the brain of a 2-year-old. Um, she was incredibly beautiful, Rosie. Mm. Um, and then my kick, because of Rosemary's brain damage, Kick and Jack were like twins. I mean, they were, they were just sort of like Shakespearean twins, really. They looked so alike. Um, both shared the same sense of humour, very teasing, very sort of screwball American teasing, 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 never really giving anyone a compliment, pushing each other, you know, jostling, very boisterous. Um, but they were completely devoted. And when they both came to, when they came to England, they were just like this sort of stand-up comedy act. You know, people were just amazed by the, the wise-cracking wit, the intelligence. But then she got very close to Joe when she fell out with the family before Joe was killed in the war. Uh, but Jack was the one that she was incredibly close to. And the other, I wanted to sort of show Jack as this very different sort of boy. This, he was an intellectual, he was very ill, he spent a lot of time reading English fiction. He was obsessed with Winston Churchill, his father hated Churchill, so that was an interesting dilemma. Um, very political, wanted to be a journalist. He didn't want to be president. And the minute Joe was killed, he said, I can feel my father's breath on the back of my neck, and I'm for the White House, and he knew it. He knew he was going to be for the White House. He didn't, want it. he didn't want it. He wanted to be an intellectual. He wanted to be a writer. He wrote his first book, a bestseller, when he was 20. It was called Why England Slept. And it was, it was, it was a fantastic political book about England's failure to rearm after the First World War. He was seriously brilliant. I mean, don't even get me started on Trump. When you look at somebody like Trump and JFK, <laughs> and you just think the towering intellect that, is, that was JFK... Um, so she, but very, very close to, to Kick. And I wanted to sort of show that, you know, he drove around pre-Nazi Germany on his own, JFK, picking up hitchhikers. And when Kick says, why did you do that? And he said, well, hitchhikers are students and students have great English and I'm realising what complete bastards the Nazis are. I mean, who else would do that? That's so brilliant. Mm. So he went around and he got the first-hand information mm. about the Nazis on his own in a car in 1939. And I kind of thought, well, where's that JFK? Hmm. Where, where do we, when do we ever see that JFK? So I kind of wanted to bring that, well, not the womanising JFK, but the intellect. So that's what I tried to do. And then Bobby. She also has a very close relationship with Bobby, doesn't she? Bobby, she adored him. Everyone adored Bobby. He was probably everybody's favourite child. Um, she used to send the most beautiful letters to Bobby and little presents, and um, he was a complete sort of shining light, really. Yeah, she really, she lo- they, were inc- they were very, very close and clannish, and it made it really difficult for other people to get in. So sort of friends and, and boyfriends and girlfriends found it really difficult because they were so tight, you know, this thing about the big family being so tight, and they could sort of finish each other's sentences and I think it's like that. I'm from a big family. And it's bonkers unless you're, you know, you can join in or sort of fight your way. Mm. I was saying to Caroline before, you know, the thing about being in a big family, you, earn, you learn very early life's unfair because you just get a punch, don't you? You know, some, <laughs> you say something wrong and you just get a punch from a sibling and you just go, OK. And so you sort of know you're, you're a bit tough, really. Um, and they sort of had that mm. um, invincibility and toughness. 
But my goodness, the love, you know, there was huge, huge love there and, and um, friendship, proper friendship, I think. It's interesting that you mentioned love. And I understand what you say there because you're talking about real affection and this incredible rapport that they had. Um, and then you were mentioning, you know, how difficult it was for boyfriends and girlfriends to kind of get in there. Interestingly, you do point out that there was a particular characteristic that Kick shared with JFK, which was a certain kind of lack of affect where they did not get emotionally attached to people. They seemed to have a certain kind of coolness. Could you just talk about that a little bit? It's a really good observation, Caroline. Yes, there was there's many letters when Kick and Jack talk about a, a sort of failure to be intimate with other people, that although they can joke around and love people, there's a real lack of emotional intimacy. And I was really trying to unpick that in the book. And I, I, think, one of the, I think one of the reasons they love the British... <laughs> and fitted in so well, because the book is about them coming to England, really, was having the stiff upper lip. And I mm. think they were brought up by nannies, like a lot of the British aristocracy. And that's why I think the British got them. So Rose was not affectionate. Um, JFK said the only time his mother ever touched him was to spank him with a coat hanger. She, he said she never, ever kissed me or hugged me once. Wow. Never. And she just wow. wasn't... She wasn't tactile or, or, or loving. So, but they had a nanny called Kiko who was very tactile and loving. And again, in, in the book he sent to Kiko of Why England Slept, it was to my darling Kiku and, it, and, it, and a joke and then to mother. You know, you just mm. quite interesting. Um, so I think there was a lack of emotional intimacy. And I think it's incredibly British. It's very sort of keep your feelings to yourself, keep a stiff upper lip, don't get too emotionally involved. Um, and I think they both had this. And in a way, it made the Brits love them and get them and understand mm. them. But it made them quite unemotionally, emotionally un unattainable in some respects as well, if because that makes sense. They both had this gift of absolutely extraordinary charisma. And the charisma was a kind of vital energy that they projected and yet and so she was she had great sex appeal I'm jumping ahead now to she's in England she's kind of conquering every heart all the debutantes are sort of being left for dead everybody wants to go out with her do you think that she was she seems to have kept men at bay and I was wondering whether you thought that she was a prude whether she was what we would call now in very inelegant terms a prick tease was she a flirt I mean on the spectrum of all of those things, I know what you're saying about, you know, this kind of withholding of, of emotion, but, but what do you think was going on in the dynamic with men, given that men found her irresistible? And as you say in the book, she was no beauty. She, she was no beauty. And, and so, you know, her, when her brothers came over, Jack and Joe, they were amazed that she'd risen to the top. They said, you've got fat ankles, there's no neck. Um, you know, you're, you're pretty plain. And they couldn't understand it. And she, yes, she had charisma. And, you know, time and time again, I was thinking about charisma when I was writing the book, thinking, what is it? How do you define it? If we could all bottle it and sell it, we'd be millionaires. And I, I spoke to so many people. And one person interviewed me at Cheltenham last year. And he, we, he was saying, what is it? What's, a, what's the Kennedy charisma? I said, I don't know. I said, oh, it's sort of it's something that shifts the energy. It's somebody comes into a room and they've got it. And the energy in the room shifts, if you know what I mean. And then they leave the room and the energy goes... Bleh. You know, it's really almost can't be defined. 
It's interesting um, that I'll you just say that because that's just reminded me of the fact that I was once at a party with JFK Jr. and I felt the temperature in the room change. I only saw him from the back. I never saw him from the front. I saw this incredible silhouette and this lustrous hair and thought, wow, that man <laughs> is hot. And afterwards, someone said to me, that was JFK Jr. So he inherited that. And you know what? You can't not, if you, uh, you, you inherit it, but you can't fake it. No. And this guy I was talking to, he said the only person he'd met JFK and Clinton, he said the only two people he's ever really seen true charisma was Clinton and JFK. That they didn't, it, just, it wasn't they just made you feel like the most important person in the room, they made you feel like the most important person in the universe. They, you, you would have full on attention eyeballing you, making you feel wonderful about yourself. And Kik had it, but she was sexy. She was incredibly sexy. Um, I think she was a prick tease. Yeah, I think she was a prude. I think she was screwed up about sex because she was a Catholic. So I think... (laughs) That's a sweeping statement. (laughs) I'm a Catholic, so I know. Um, But um, what I mean by that is the, the double standard of the times where Joe, the father, would lay out pornographic, sorry kids um centerfolds on the boys beds for the boys and send them off to prostitutes and the girls were sent to convent schools and not supposed to talk about sex so there's a sexual gender double standard running through that family like rock you know um and it doesn't do for healthy sexual relationships i don't think so i think kick did inherit you know the nuns that catholicism the sex is bad go to confession confess and then she's seeing her brothers doing all this stuff that she's not allowed to do and yet she herself like JFK has got this sexual charisma that exudes from every pore so that every man every woman you know wants to marry her and of course all the girls these beautiful willowy debutantes these English aristocrats are not getting a look in she's stealing all she's stealing all the men and she's funny and she's clever and she and she's, doesn't take herself seriously. She's so down to earth. And she takes the mickey out of the aristocracy. And she says, well, it's all a bit of a joke, really, isn't it? And they're saying, no. <laughs> no, it's not. And she's like, no, but it is. Dukey-wookey. And she's calling the Duke Dukey-wookey. Um, this is um, the Duke of Devonshire. Duke she of calls Devonshire. him Dukey-wookey. <laughs> you know, she's completely irreverent, you know, about, uh, about all that stuff. Because she knows that stuff doesn't really matter. And also, she's an American heir. She's got confidence. She's got co- money gives you confidence. She mm-hmm. had a million in the, She was a trust fund baby. So, but there was a sort of confidence, again, that you can't, you can't fake that kind of confidence, I don't think. Do you, I don't know what you think, but it's, do you know what I mean? It's sort of you've got it or you haven't got it. Yeah, I think you've got it. a moment about her politics, Paula, because it's interesting that she comes from this kind of blue chip, blue blood Democrat family, scion of a Democratic family, uh, of a Democrat family in the US. And yet when she gets to the UK, she is rabidly conservative. Yeah. And that is really fascinating. And I mean, yeah, ish. I mean, she is, but she listens to practically every one of Winston Churchill's speeches. She goes off with Jack barely because he's such a great orator barely loses a chance and so she so basically her politics in England was very much country house politics and JFK learnt a lot from English politics where you went to these posh weekends to Blenheim Palace and Chatsworth and the one that Downton Abbey Highclere and you would talk politics um, and she was one of the few women who would talk so the other Debs 
didn't really care. And the men couldn't believe it, because how was this bright, sexy woman wanting to talk about politics and see both sides and what's going on here and what's going on there? And Jack, as they, the, the, all those tea parties he did for the election when he became president, he said was based on English country house politics, that he learned soft power, get to the women, get the tea parties going, get the, you know, get, get the sisters to say, oh, that JFK is handsome, vote for him. You know, that, he had a campaign of soft power, which is about getting women involved. Um, but So she had a really fascinating exposure. She is living in 1938 and 1939 in England at the most interesting time politically, when the whole world is going bonkers. Her father, obviously pro-Hitler, doesn't want America to get into the war, isolationist. His son does not think that. The two boys are going to sign... The minute the war's declared, they're going to sign up, and he knows that. He knows he's going to lose the sons. He just knows that. So and she's, he's the ambassador. He's the US ambassador in Britain, so he's got a formal, official, diplomatic role, but he and the President of the United States don't see things quite the same way. Correct, correct. And, and the children are very aware, because I mean, you mentioned before about Rose pinning topics to discuss at lunchtime for the kids. Those kids, if anyone important came to supper in England, those kids, all nine of them, would sit at a table and listen. They weren't sent off to some other room. They would be on a little table, and she'd say, listen to the conversation. She was, in a way, she was a brilliant teacher. She'd have been, she'd better teacher than a mother, frankly. Um, so those kids were exposed to so much political talk and historical talk that most children in those days just, you know, they just wouldn't have been exposed to that. So... But you're right. I mean, she was drawn to the Conservatives, and partly that was because of Billy, because she fell in love with the Duke of Devonshire's eldest son, who was, again, Tory, Conservative, the richest man, the most eligible bachelor in England. I mean, any mother would have, you know, walked over shards of ice, icy glass for their daughter. <laughs> and Rose said, you know, not on your Nelly, you marrying him, love, you know. <laughs> Um, and so, um, but she, so she was very uh, pro Billy's politics. But Billy and JFK had long talks into the, into the night about democracy and about conservatives. And she knew the world was going to change. Had they both survived the war, it would have been very interesting politically, I think, mm. because uh, JFK would have been in the White House. Billy would have been a major player. He's always been in politics. Billy, the family, the Devonshire's, were always in politics. He lost his seat actually just in the war. Um, and then the Labour government coming in, they knew that world was changing forever. So who knows? But yeah, you're right. She did veer to, to the right. She did. And let's just talk a little bit more about her experience of the war, because obviously for a lot of women, that was the moment when they got a little taste of emancipation in that they suddenly had to replace men in various roles while men went off to fight. So she was in London. Can you just describe that crucial time in Kick's life when, when you know, the blackout, the blitz, the everything that's going on and what she sure. does by way of sort of social responsibility? Yeah, she, and when war breaks out, Joe, who's ambassador immediately panics and sends all nine children home as fast as he can on different boats. So if the Germans bomb them, he won't lose all nine. Uh, this did not go down very well in the English press. Uh, Ron, rabbit, Ron, you know, the headlines were, you know, Joe's a coward, looks after his own kids while all our kids are getting bombed. He's the ambassador and he didn't care. Kick screamed, cried, I, w- I don't want to go. I want to stay in London. This is my life. These are my friends. No chance. He sends her back and she spends the next three years trying to get back. And then finally, in 1943, she persuades her father to let her join the American Red Cross as a donut girl. 
and she comes back to England in 1943. And the, the job she had was to boost morale for the American GIs, who, frankly, hated the warm beer. Who wouldn't? Hated the weather, hated the food in England. So these donut girls would give coffee and do- good coffee and donuts <laughs> and tell jokes and talk about, you know, America and, you know, the new world and so to commiserate over the warm, rubbish British beer. Um, and so she said, she said, I spend most of my life explaining the Americans to the British and sp- explaining the British to the Americans. <laughs> so she felt very sort of in between. And the minute she was back working as a GI, Billy, who was on leave, you know, hot-footed it to her side and said, I marry you or no one, and I'm about to go back to the war, and what if I die and you grant me this wish? And she said, I can't, I'm Catholic, I can't do this. She loved him. And so there was a huge sort of Barney, really. But, well, she, she demonstrated whether she had a will in a way to match her mother's, didn't she? Which was a formidable thing to overcome, her mother's will. And, you know, it's funny because people talk about it now and they say, oh, come on, you know, Catholic, Protestant. I said, you've just got to understand what it was like then. Also, the Kennedys were like that with the Pope. They'd been to his coronation. They were the most prominent Catholics in America. And to be fair to Rose, she said, well, if Kick marries out, then it gives carte blanche for every American girl. That's how she saw it. And also, again, on Rose's side, you may completely disagree, but it's true, she thought Kick was going to hell. End of. Look, we may not agree with that. We may think it's bonkers, and it is bonkers. But she actually thought, if my daughter marries this man, she will go to hell and I won't see her in heaven. I mean, after JFK was killed, she said, she talked, I'll see the president when I get to heaven. She completely, you know, when I see the president, I'm going to tell him that he should have done this, you know. She would talk about heaven as a place, and she believed it. So for her daughter's soul to be lost was huge for her. And I can tell you, every archbishop, the Pope was involved. This was Romeo and Juliet of the highest scale. Telegrams going back and forth. Rose saying, do not marry this man. Billy saying, please marry me, please marry me. Um, so, but she had to renounce her faith. So she did renounce her faith and come over to the dark side. And they married in a register office, which mm. absolutely killed Rose. Rose had a nervous breakdown in America. and, and uh, Did not attend. Did not attend. Nobody attended the wedding except Joe Jr. And it was desperately sad for, for Kick because she'd broken her mother's heart, really. Um, but then she came round, Rose. She came round. And she came round when Billy died. Hey, funny that. <laughs> she really got... She really started to like him after he was dead. Um, so they didn't get long together. So no. after all that tragedy um, and losing her family, Billy went back. He said, happiest day of his life, marrying Kick. Uh, he's this gorgeous, gentle soul who I think the war really brought the best out in him. Etonian, you know, shy Etonian um, Cambridge guy who just loved being a soldier and he was very brave. And he liberated Belson and he wrote this beautiful letter um, about liberating Belgium from the Nazis. And, and he says, I've got a lump in my... You know, this sort of stiff English man saying, I've got a lump in my throat and tears in my eyes, and this is why we've done it. And um, not long before the war ended, um, he was... He did this thing that... America, I don't know if you know this, but I'm always very moved by this, but um, British uh, soldiers and possibly other Commonwealth too and wore white... They didn't wear regulation. One of the, one of the privileges of office, being an officer was you didn't have to wear a helmet <laughs> and you could wear white. Now, why would you do that? <laughs> OK, um, because you're putting two things up to the Nazis and saying, 
I know you know I'm an officer because I'm wearing white. And I know you're going to want to take me down because then the morale goes, right? But you know what? I'm still going to do it. So Billy, who refused to wear a helmet, wore a white Macintosh and white cords, um, was leading his men through a field, um, lobbed a hand grenade through a farmhouse, and a sniper was waiting and shot him through the heart. Um, and then later on, a farm, a farm hand found him, and he said he knew he was the officer because he was all in white and no regulation uniform, no hat, and he had these long legs, and the legs were leaning against the door of the kitchen where his men had dragged him in, and just a bullet wound through his heart. So they only had... They, were, they had five weeks honeymoon and then five months mm. while they were writing to each other. And so it was so sad, all that agony, almost mm. for nothing, really. So it was such a tragic, tragic story. Absolutely. There's another player in the sort of English part of the story that I just wanted us to touch on a little bit because she came under the protection of a formidable sort of society maven, Nancy Astor. And I was just wondering whether you could tell us a little bit about who Nancy Astor was and why she was so influential and why she kind of... She became a sort of surrogate mother in a way, didn't she, to kick? She did. And, of course, what what Nancy Astor, the great American expatriate who married Lord Astor who was a woman MP and obviously we all remember her probably from being Winston Churchill's public enemy number one. She was the one, he said, if I was married to you, I'd put poison in your coffee. And she said, if I were married to you, I'd drink it. <laughs> so they had, you know, their wit combats in Parliament are the stuff of legends, you know. Um, and she, she adored Kick because she saw Kick as the next Nancy Astor. Another great quip was when she first came to um, England, all the uh, English aristocratic women said, uh, we've heard you've come to steal our husbands. Um, and she said, if you only knew the trouble I had getting rid of mine. <laughs> so, she'd, you know, so she came as this divorcee and then married you know, the richest man. Another rich man. So she, and she, and at one point, she, she grabbed Kick and she said, it's in your blood, England's in your blood, you'll never go back, you know, you'll never go back. You know. And Kick laughed at this, but in fact, she was right, yeah. England got in her blood. And she did become um, a mother figure and then fell out with Rose because Rose felt that Nancy was encouraging the Billy Union. So there was a bit of, a bit of te- family tension. Um, but she completely worshipped Kick and... Um, even though she hated Catholics, Nancy Astor hated Catholics with a passion. Um, she was a Christian scientist. She was a really fascinating woman. Um, Highclere became a hospital for soldiers, and Kick would still go during the war, and she'd still go up. And Nancy would play tennis with the with the bereaved and with the wounded, and with the. She was an amazing woman. So she was. So Kick, I think, emulated her and wanted to be Nancy, and thought if Nancy can do it. She's an American from a non-aristocratic background. She's done it. She's got to the top. I can do it. And also, she was so badly in need of a mother figure. Mm. Her own mother had let her down badly. So I think she was in need. She, she had numerous sort of female surrogate mothers. She was very lovable, Kick. And older women just adored... Older men adored her. She had that, again, that Kennedy thing that children and old people like you as well. I mean, gosh, the charm. 
Yeah, the charm. The it was a real charm, offensive. <laughs> and that actually brings me to ask you about something else, because, you know, she wore all of this very lightly, but there's no doubt that she was moving in a very rarefied, elite kind of circle. And she was obviously extremely at ease in that sort of aristocratic world. But she also wrote, I think, at one stage to her father, she, you've got her saying in a letter, it's great to be famous. So her attitude to celebrity was... She knew it was useful. She didn't exactly reject it. Could you just talk a little bit about that sort of attitude to fame and celebrity? Because that's so attached to the Kennedy myth. I think, like many people, she was ambivalent towards it. I think, on the one hand, like, and this is very bright said, she was very drawn to panache and elegance. And, you know, the British aristocracy do that quite well. Um, and so she was really drawn, I mean, not so much celebrity, because celebrity is such a, I mean, celebrity is about nobody's making it big, really, I suppose, or being famous for being famous. Mm. Whereas this kind of British thing is, it's very tied up with breeding. It's very snobbish. It's very unpleasant. And, um, you know, who you are, who you went to school with, you know, they're still like that, honestly. Um, and, and she just, on the one hand, laughed at it, because that's the best way to do, deal with snobbery like just laugh at it you know and they kind of liked that because she wasn't kowtowing to it but she was lured by it I mean Mm. she liked those Devonshire jewels my goodness she wanted that keys to that safe and who wouldn't I mean they are jewels to die I mean she would wear the most incredible you know jewelry um and also you know castle in Ireland Chatsworth House, massive house in London, massive house in the north. It's not too shabby. Well, and, you know. and I mean, you say there's one very telling, lovely little anecdote that you mentioned that when she comes home from all of that grandeur and high living, she puts her shoes outside her door at home because she's expecting someone to come along and polish them. <laughs> but then on the other hand, and you know, you're completely right, she was sort of it's very hard not to be lured into that, actually, I think. I think there's a huge... Um, it's incredibly seductive, I think, at that level. Um, but the other story about shoes, and I love stories about shoes, because one of the reasons she was called Kick was she used to always kick her shoes off. So when she first went to these posh country estates, she would shock everyone, she'd kick her shoes off, and they'd say, oh, we don't, we don't do that. And she'd go, why? <laughs> you know, and, and they'd say, oh, no, 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 that's not done. And she just carry on, oblivious. So they decided when she was at Hatfield, which is a great, the Cecil's great country seat, they decided the women, that they play a trick on her. So they hid all her right shoes so that when she came down for dinner, well, A, she probably wouldn't be able to get down for dinner or what would she do? Would she mismatch them or whatever? So she just didn't take a feather out of her. She just wore two right, you know, they took all the left, she took two right shoes. And so she was limping. And the boys were in on the joke, and they said, Kick, why are you limping? And she said, oh, Robert broke my leg before dinner. And then everyone just fell about laughing, and she won them over. Mm. So she just sort of didn't really venerate that. But I think you're right. There was, look, she liked being the Marquis of Hartingdon. She liked being Lady Hartington. No, so when when, when she was married to Bill and she came back to visit the family... Um, and JFK would say, oh, the Marquis is coming through, the Marquis is... And they'd all make a joke about Lady Hartington. And um, I think she liked that. And she called it making an ambitious marriage. So when one of her friends married someone, she said, oh, Catherine, I thought you were ambitious, you know. So there was a sort of... That's very Jane Austen, isn't it? Very Jane Austen. Very, like I say, like um, Elizabeth Bennet, she fell in love with Billy when she saw his big house. You know, that moment when they say to, they say to Lizzie Bennet, when did, when did you first love him? Well, I saw his house. And it's a joke. Lizzie Bennet's always joking. But 
are you going to turn down Chatsworth? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. And she makes a joke about keeping... She says, I'm going to keep my naval brothers in their old age. I'll give them a castle each. Um, but she did. She did. She liked that. She did like it. So, having said that about her, Paula, I'm interested. I mean, the book is very pro her. You clearly like her. You, you admire her. You respect her energy. I think you think she would have been a really fun person to hang out with. I think one of the things that you communicate very well is that whilst she had this incredible ability to attract men, she was also capable of deep and meaningful friendships with women. So I want to know what you think her flaws were. Do you know, it's really difficult. She, she was a woman's woman. That's one of the things I really liked about her. Mm. She was a flirt and a tease, but she was a woman's woman, and women loved her, loved her. And, I mean, when she died, mm. she died very young. And when, it was like Diana when the coffin came out. People were throwing themselves, screaming. That's not... We Brits just don't do that. You know, we don't really cry very much. We certainly don't scream when someone's coffin's brought, you know. She, she seemed to elicit this extraordinary loyalty in women, and so I, always, I like women who are women's women, you know. Mm. Um, so I really liked that in her. She was incredibly witty. Um, she was a great journalist. She wrote a fantastic piece about the blackout. She had real talent. And I think had she been encouraged to be more political, that would have been very interesting. Um, I didn't really... And, and all her friends said, she, you couldn't find anything to fault. I mean, nobody's perfect. But time and time again, so Debo, Duchess of Devon, just said... She, nobody said an unkind thing about her. Mm. Nobody said anything catty behind her back. Everybody loved her. She was just so lovable. Um, she didn't get caught up in the gossip too much. But also, she was clear-eyed. You know, she talked about the English hams, and she was nasty about the... You know, she could be really spiteful about some of the men. You know, they're the sort of weak lip, weak-chinned um, aristocrat. She could be really scathing. So she had a sharp... She was sharp-tongued when she wanted to be. But she stood up to her family. She stood up, up against her faith and her country. She was incredibly brave. Um, so I didn't see... I mean, nobody likes a paragon of virtue, but I don't... Yeah. You, you know, I didn't really see much to dislike. But I don't really think I would want to spend three, four years in her company if I, liked, if I didn't like her. Yeah. It's a long time in your biography. You've got to like them, really. Otherwise, it's a bit of a problem. You just mentioned there that you wouldn't want to spend three or four years on someone that you didn't like. But have you ever been in a situation as a biographer where you have had that moment of falling out of love with your subject and you've had to find a way to reconnect with them because they've done something absolutely vile? I mean, I'm thinking that, for example, you know, Evelyn War was not a particularly nice piece of work. He may have been brilliant, but was he nice? Well, I don't really do nice I think, um, apart from kick, because nice is boring. Um, I love Evelyn Moore, and, and one of the reasons I wrote the book was I thought, if he was that bad, why was he beloved by such a wide circle of friends? Why did everyone love him? I've read the letters. Something else is going on. And the, what was going on was he, the jokes. Mm. He joked about everything. And people, I do think, took him the wrong way. And again, the, the War family got behind me because they said, oh, my God, you're the first biographer that actually has a sense of humour. You actually see he's joking half the time. Look, he could be unpleasant. Yes, he had the banana in front of the children. He did do that. Um, but you know what? We, we can all be bad parents. Um, we've all done things probably we're a bit ashamed. You know about the banana story, Yeah, you? you should tell the banana story. Do you know the story. banana story? No. OK, so this is why everyone hates even war in England. <laughs> it's the war. He was an incredibly brave soldier who would also wear white. And he came back, and the children were all sort of, oh, my gosh, the returning war hero, waiting to see their beloved 
popper. And they'd never seen a banana because it was rationing. And as a celebration of their father coming home, they had three bananas to share around the family. And they sat while he ceremoniously unpeeled the banana, covered them in cream and sugar, and ate them in front of them. (laughs) (laughs) So every time, uh, wherever I am, talking about Evelyn Ward, they go, oh, the banana. You know, (laughs) you would think he sort of whipped them with the banana and sort of, you know, did unspeakable (laughs) things with the banana. Um, And I'm like, okay, he ate a banana in front of his starving children. Okay, yeah, that's pretty bad, but... He was very loyal. He was very good to his friends. <laughs> so, uh, um, but saying so the banana story always comes up. But I don't, you know, I quite, I quite, I think grumpy people are really interesting and fun. And um, uh, but uh, the one person I didn't really, and I loved Evelyn Waugh because he just made me laugh. That book was a joy to be in his company mm. for four years was an utter joy. It, he was tears streaming down your cheeks. Funny Evelyn Waugh, like like Jane Austen is for me, and they're a delight to be in. And Kick was a delight. But Mary Perdita Robinson, the feminist, the 18th century person, I fell out of love with her. Ah. And she was terror. I was frightened of her. She was so formidable and terrifying. And actually, she really wasn't a very nice person. And um, have I got time to quickly tell this story? Yes. She wrote a memoir after her affair with the Prince of Wales when he was 17 and she was 19. She was an actress. She wrote a memoir about how he made a big play for her, how he stood on the stage, sort of, you know throwing kisses and saying, come and meet me afterwards. And it was all his fault, you know. And everyone who read this memoir believed it. And then just before I was about to go to publish, it was a very, very interesting story. Somebody phoned me and said, look, there's a bunch of letters in this little house in Surrey that were, were written to the Prince of Wales about your Mary Robinson. You need to go and see them. So I, beat, I phoned these gorgeous, lovely people and said, can I come and see these letters that are in your attic? Yes. So I go on down, find these letters, and they are written from the Prince of Wales. They're like in the attic, you know, beautifully written. They're just gorgeous things. And he says, well, I was at the theatre last night and this woman was really making a play for me and she was on the stage and I couldn't get rid of her. <laughs> so it's a completely opposite story. <laughs> but his was so immediate and so truthful and, and it sort of made me really distrust so much that I'd take him for real. Uh, I knew she was doing a whitewash, but, I, but she, she, was very fr- she was a very frightening woman. Um, and I sort of fell out of love. I admired her, though, because she was a great feminist and she was a great advocate. She was a great mother. Um, but she, you know, I, I was sort of quite frightened of her, really, by the end of it. And I, d- I was quite glad when that... I tell you, when that manuscript, um, my husband said, you look really happy. I said, get that woman out of this house now. <laughs> Because I just had it, you know, I was up to here with Mary Robinson. <laughs> and I can honestly say I have never felt like that about any of the other subjects I've done. I've sort of lamented leaving them. But Mary Robinson, it was like I really wanted to boot her out as quickly as possible. <laughs> the almost mythic curse of the Kennedy family strikes again in this biography of a life cut short in its prime and just as Kathleen was about to embark on a whole new chapter. It's chilling to think that John Kennedy Jr. was not the first member of the family to die in a plane crash. I visited Kick's grave at Ensor near Chatsworth, where she would have become the Duchess if she'd not died. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. If you like us, please leave us a review and subscribe so that you can get new episodes automatically. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown and licensed by Lily Pilly IP.